Section 19 of Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888 by Francis Rowe. Section 19. Letters from 1886-1887. Fort Shaw, Montana Territory, July 1886. My trip to Helena was made alone after all. The evening before I started, Mrs. Todd told me that she could not go, frankly admitting that she was afraid to go over the lonesome places on the road with only the driver for a protector. It was important that I should see a dentist, and Mrs. Averill was depending upon me to bring her friend down from Helena, who was expected from the east, so I decided to go alone. The quartermaster gave me the privilege of choosing my driver, and I asked for a civilian, a rather old man who was disliked by everyone because of his surly, disagreeable manner. Just why I chose him I cannot tell, except that he is a good driver, and I felt that he could be trusted. The morning we started, Faye said to him, Driver, you must take good care of Mrs. Ray, for she asked for you to drive on this trip, which must have had its effect, that and the nice lunch I had prepared for him, for he was kind and thoughtful at all times. It takes two days to go to Helena from here, a ride of forty-five miles one day and forty the second, and on each long drive there are stretches of miles and miles over mountains and through canyons where one is far from a ranch or human being, and one naturally thinks of robbers and other unpleasant things. At such places I rode on top with the driver, where I could at least see what was going on around us. Just before we crossed the Birdtail Divide, we came to a wonderful sight, a sight worth seeing, the driver said, and more to gratify him than because I wanted to, we stopped. An enormous corral had been put up temporarily, and in it were thousands of sheep, so closely packed that those in the center were constantly jumping over the others, trying to find a cooler place. In the winter, when the weather is very cold, sheep will always jump from the outer circle of the band to the center, where it is warm. They always huddle together in cold weather, and herders are frequently compelled to remain right with them nights at a time working hard every minute separating them so they will not smother. One of the men, owner of the sheep, I presume, met us and said he would show me where to go so I could see everything that was being done, which proved to be directly back of a man who was shearing sheep. They told me that he was the fastest and most expert shearer in the whole territory. Anyone could see that he was an expert, for three men were kept busy waiting upon him, at one corner of the corral was a small, funnel-shaped drive, the outer opening of which was just large enough to squeeze a sheep through, and in the drive stood a man, sheep in hand, ever ready to rush it straight to the hands of the shearer the instant he was ready for it. The shearer, who was quite a young man, sat upon a box close to the drive, and when he received a sheep it was always the same way, between his knees and he commenced and finished the shearing of each animal exactly the same way, every clip of the large shears counting to the best advantage. 
They told me that he gained much time by the unvarying precision that left no ragged strips to be trimmed off. The docility of those wild sheep was astonishing. Almost while the last clip was being made, the sheep was seized by a second assistant, standing at the shearer's left, who at once threw the poor thing down on its side, where he quickly painted the brand of that particular ranch, after which it was given its freedom. It was most laughable to see the change in the sheep, most of them looking lean and lanky, whereas in less than one short minute before their sides had been broad and woolly. A third man to wait upon the shearer was kept busy at his right, carefully gathering the wool and stuffing it in huge sacks. Every effort was made to keep it clean, and every tiny bit was saved. About four o'clock we reached Rock Creek, where we remained overnight at a little inn. The house is built of logs, and the architecture is about as queer as its owner. Mrs. Gates, wife of the proprietor, can be, and usually is, very cross and disagreeable, and I rather dreaded stopping there alone. But she met me pleasantly, that is, she did not snap my head off, so I gathered courage to ask for a room that would be near someone, as I was timid at night. That settled my standing in her opinion, and with a hm, she led the way across a hall and through a larger room, where there were several beds, and opening a door on the further side that led to still another room, she told me I could have that, adding that I needn't be scared to death as the boys will sleep right there. I asked her how old the boys were, and she snapped, How old? Why, they's men's folks! And out of the room she went. Upon looking around, I saw that my one door opened into the next room, and that as soon as the boys occupied it, I would be virtually a prisoner. To be sure, the windows were not far from the ground, and I could easily jump out, but to jump in again would require longer arms and legs than I possessed. But just then I felt I would much prefer to encounter robbers, mountain lions, any gentle creatures of that kind, to asking Mrs. Gates for another room. When I went out to supper that night, I was given a seat at one end of a long table, where were sitting nine men, including my own civilian driver, who fortunately was near the end furthest from me. No one paid the slightest attention to me, each man attending to his own hungry self and trying to outdo the others in talking. Finally, they commenced telling marvelous tales about horses that they had ridden and subdued, and I said to myself that I had been told all about sheep that day, and there it was about horses, and I wondered how far I would have to go to hear all sorts of things about cattle. But anything about a horse is always of interest to me, and those men were particularly entertaining, as it was evident that most of them were professional trainers. There was sitting at the further end of the table a rather young-looking man, who had been less talkative than the others, but who, after a while, said something about a horse at the fort. The mentioning of the post was startling, and I listened to hear what further he had to say. And he continued, "'Yes, you fellers can say what you dem please about your broncos, but that little horse can corral any dem piece of horseflesh you can show up. A lady rides him.' and I guess I'd put her up with the horse. The boys over there say that she broke the horse herself, and I say you fellas ought to see her make him go, and he likes it too. By the time the man stopped talking, my excitement was great, 
for I was positive that he had been speaking of Rollo, although no mention had been made of the horse's color or gait. So I asked what gait the horse had. He and two or three of the other men looked at me with pity in their eyes, actual pity, that plainly said, Poor thing, what can you know about gates? But he answered civilly, Well, lady, he is what you call a square pacer. And having done his duty, he turned again to his friends, as though they only could understand him, and said, No cow swing about that horse. He is a light sorrel, and has the very handsomest mane you ever did see. It waves, too, and I guess the lady curls it, but don't know for sure. The situation was most unusual, and in some ways most embarrassing also. Those nine men were rough and unkept, but they were splendid horsemen, that I knew intuitively, and to have one of their number select my very own horse above all others to speak of with unstinted praise was something to be proud of but to have my own self calmly and complacently disposed of with the horse put up in fact was quite another thing but not the slightest disrespect had been intended and to leave the table without making myself known was not to be thought of i wanted the pleasure too of telling those men that i knew the gait of a pacer very well that not in the least did I deserve their pity. My face was burning and my voice unnatural when I threw the bomb. I said, the horse you are speaking of I know very well. He is mine, and I ride him, and I thank you very much for the nice things you have just said about him. Well, there was a sudden change of scene at that table, a dropping of knives and forks and various other things, and I became conscious of eyes, thousands of eyes, staring straight at me as I watched my bronco friend at the end of the table. The man had opened his eyes wide and almost gasped, Jehuizlam, then utterly collapsed. He sat back in his chair, gazing at me in a helpless, bewildered way that was disconcerting. So I told him a number of things about Rollo, how Faye had taken him to Helena during race week, and Lafferty, a professional jockey of Bozeman, had tested his speed and had passed a two-thirty trotter with him one morning. The men knew Lafferty, of course. There was a queer coincidence connected with him and Rollo. The horse that he was driving at the races was a pacer named Rolla, while my horse, also a pacer, was named Rollo. All talk about horses ceased at once and the men said very little to each other during the remainder of the time we were at the table. It was almost pathetic, and an attention I very much appreciated, to see how bread, pickles, cold meat, and, in fact, everything else on that rough table were quietly pushed to me, one after the other, without one word being said. That was their way of showing their approval of me. It was unpolished, but truly sincere. I was not at all afraid that night, for I suspected that the horsemen at the supper table were the boys referred to by Mrs. Gates, but it was impossible to sleep. The partition between the two rooms must have been very thin, for the noises that came through were awful. It seemed as though dozens of men were snoring at the same time, and that some of them were dangerously croupy, for they choked and gulped 
and every now and then one would have a nightmare and groan and yell until someone would tell him to shut up or perhaps say something funny about him to the others. No matter how many times those men were wakened, they were always cheerful and good-natured about it, a statement that I cannot truthfully make about myself on the same subject. It was not necessary for me to leave my room through the window the next morning, although my breakfast was early. The house seemed deserted, and I had the long table all to myself. At six o'clock we started on our ride to Helena. I sat with the driver going through the long prickly pear canyon, and had a fine opportunity of seeing its magnificent grandeur, while the early shadows were still long. The sun was on many of the higher boulders that made them sparkle and show brilliantly in their highlights and shadows. The trees and bushes looked unusually fresh and green. We hear that a railroad will soon be built through that canyon, but we hope not. It would be positively wicked to ruin anything so grand. We reached Helena before luncheon, and I soon found Miss Duncan, who was expecting me. We did not start back until the second day, so she and I visited all the shops, and then drove out to Sulphur Spring. The way everybody and everything have grown and spread out since the Northern Pacific Railroad has been running cars through Helena is most amazing. It was so recently a mining town, just last chance gulch, where Chinamen were digging up the streets for gold, almost undermining the few little buildings, and Chinamen also were raising delicious celery, where now stand very handsome houses. Now Main Street has many pretentious shops, and pretty residences have been put up almost to the base of Mount Helena. The ride back was uneventful, greatly to Miss Duncan's disappointment. It is her first visit to the West, and she wants to see cowboys and all sorts of things. I should have said wanted to see, for I think that already her interest in brass buttons is so great that cowboys will never be thought of again. There were two at Rock Creek, but they were uninteresting, did not wear chaps, pistols, or even big spurs. At the bird tail, not one sheep was to be seen. Everyone had been sheared, and the big band driven back to its range. Miss Duncan is a pretty girl, and unaffected, and will have a delightful visit at this western army post, where young girls from the east do not come every day. And then we have several charming young bachelors. End of letter. Fort Shaw, Montana Territory, December 1887. The excitement is about over. Our guests have returned to their homes, and now we are settling down to our everyday garrison life. The wedding was very beautiful, and as perfect in every detail as adoring father and mother and loving friends could make it. It was so strictly a military wedding, too, at a frontier post where everything is of necessity army blue, the bride, the child of the regiment, her father, an officer in the regiment many years, and the groom, a recent graduate from West Point, a lieutenant in the regiment. We see all sorts of so-called military weddings in the East, some very magnificent church affairs, others at private houses and informal, but there are ever lacking the real army surroundings that made so perfect the little wedding of Wednesday evening. The hall was beautifully draped with the greatest number of flags of all sizes, each one a regulation, however, 
and the altar and chancel rail were thickly covered with ropes and sprays of fragrant western cedars and many flowers, and from either side of the reredos hung from their staffs the beautifully embroidered silken colors of the regiment. At the rear end of the hall stood two companies of enlisted men, one on each side of the aisle, in shining full-dress uniforms, helmets in hand. The bride's father is captain of one of those companies, and the groom a lieutenant in the other. As one entered the hall after passing numerous orderlies, each one in full-dress uniform, of course, and walked up between the two companies, every man standing like a statue, one became impressed by the rare beauty and military completeness of the whole scene. The bride is petite and very young, and looked almost a child as she and her father slowly passed us, her gown of heavy ivory satin trailing far back of her. The orchestra played several numbers previous to the ceremony, the Mendelssohn march for processional and Lohengrim for recessional, but the really exquisite music was during the ceremony, when there came to us softly, as if floating from afar over gold lace and perfumed silks and satins, the enchanting strains of Moskowski's serenade. Faye remained with the orchestra all the time to see that the music was changed at just the right instant and without mistake. The pretty reception was in the quarters of Major and Mrs. Stokes, and there also was the delicious supper served. Some of the presents were elegant. A case containing sixty handsome small pieces of silver was given by the officers of the regiment a superb silver pitcher by the men of Major Stokes' company, and an exquisite silver after-dinner coffee set by the company in which the groom is a lieutenant. Several young officers came down from Fort Assiniboine to assist as ushers, and there were at the post four girls from Helena. An army post is always an attractive place to girls, but it was apparent from the first that these girls came for an extra fine time. I think they found it. They were all at our cotillion Monday evening, and kept things moving fast. It was refreshing to have a new element, and a little variety in partners. We have danced with each other so much that everyone has become more or less like a machine. Faye led, dancing with Miss Stokes, for whom the German was given. The figures were very pretty, some of them new, and the supper was good. To serve refreshments of any kind at the hall means much work for everything has to be prepared at the house, even coffee must be sent over hot, and every piece of china and silver needed must be sent over also. Mrs. Hughes came from Helena on Saturday, and remained with me until yesterday. You know something of the awful times I have had with servants since Hulda went away. First came the lady tourist, who did us the honor to consent to our paying her expenses from St. Paul, and who informed me upon her arrival that she was not obliged to work out, no, indeed, that her own home was much nicer than our house, that she had come up to see the country, and so forth. We found her presence too great a burden, particularly as she could not prepare the simplest meal, and so invited her to return to her elegant home. Then came the two women, the mother to Mrs. Todd, the daughter to me, who were insulted because they were expected to occupy servants' rooms and could not eat with the family. So Mrs. Todd and I gave them cordial invitations to depart. 
Then came my Russian treasure, a splendid cook, but who could not be taught that a breakfast or dinner an hour late mattered to a regimental adjutant, and wondered why guard-bounding could not be held back while she prepared an early breakfast for Faye. After a struggle of two months she was passed on. A tall, angular woman with dull red hair drawn up tight and twisted in a knot as hard as her head was my next trial. She was the wife of a gambler of the lowest type, but that I did not know while she was here. One day I told her to do something that she objected to, and with her hands clinched tight she came up close as if to strike me. I stood still, of course, and quietly said, You mustn't strike me. She looked like a fury and screamed, I will if I want to. She was inches taller than I, but I said, If you do, I will have you locked in the guardhouse. She became very white and fairly hissed at me. You can't do that. I ain't a soldier. I told her, No, if you were a soldier, you would soon be taught to behave yourself. And I continued, You are in an army post, however, and if you do me violence, I will certainly call the guard. Before I turned to go from the room, I looked up at her and said, Now I expect you to do what I have told you to do. I fully expected a strike on my head before I got very far, but she controlled herself. I went out of the house, hoping she would do the same and never return, but she was there still, and we had to tell her to go after all. I must confess, though, that the work she had objected to doing, she did nicely while I was out. Miller told me that she had three pistols and two large watches in her satchel when she went away. Then came a real treasure, Scotch Ellen, who has been with us six months and has been very satisfactory every way. To be sure, she has had awful headaches, and often it has been necessary for someone to do her work. She and the sergeant's wife prepared the supper for the German, and everything was sent to the hall in a most satisfactory way, much to my delight. Nothing wrong was noticed the next morning either, until she carried chocolate to Mrs. Hughes, when I saw with mortification that she looked untidy. But thinking of the confusion in her part of the house, I said nothing about it. Our breakfast hour is twelve o'clock, and about eleven Mrs. Hughes and I went out for a little walk. In a short time Faye joined us, and just before twelve I came in to see if everything was in its proper place on the table. As I went down the hall, I saw a sight in the dining room that sent shivers down my back. On the table were one or two doilies, and one or two of various other things, and at one side stood the Scotch treasure with a plate in one hand, upon which were a few butter balls, and in the other she held a butter pick. The doors leading through pantry into the kitchen were open, and all along the floor I could see here and there a little golden ball that had evidently rolled off the plate. I could also see the range that looked black and cold and without one spark of fire. Going to the side of the table opposite Ellen, I said, Ellen, what is the matter with you? And looking at me with dull, heavy eyes, she said, And what is the matter with you? Then I saw that she was drunk, horribly drunk, and told her so. But she could only say, I'm drunk, am I? I ran outside for Faye, 
but he and Mrs. Hughes had walked to the further end of the officer's line, and I was compelled to go all that distance before I could overtake them and tell of my woes. I wanted the woman out of the house as quickly as possible, so that Miller, who is a very good cook, and I could prepare some sort of breakfast. Faye went to the house with his longest strides and told the woman to go at once, and I saw no more of her. Mrs. Hughes was most lovely about the whole affair, said that not long ago she had tried a different cook each week for six in succession. That was comforting, but did not go far toward providing a breakfast for us. Miller proved to be a genuine treasure, however, and the sergeant's wife, who is ever a friend indeed, came to our assistance so soon we scarcely missed the Scotch creature. Still, it was most exasperating to have such an unnecessary upheaval just at the very time we had a guest in the house, a dainty, fastidious little woman, too, and wanted things to move along smoothly. I wonder of what nationality the next trial will be. If one gets a good maid out here, the chances are that she will soon marry a soldier or quarrel with one, as was the case with Hulda. For some unaccountable reason, a Chinese laundry at Sun River has been the cause of all the Chinamen leaving the post. Now I must tell of something funny that happened to me. The morning before Mrs. Hughes arrived, I went out for a little ride, and about two miles up the river I left the road to follow a narrow trail that leads to a bluff called Crown Butte. I had to go through a large field of wild rose bushes, then across an alkali bed, and then through more bushes. I had passed the first bushes and was more than halfway across the alkali, Rollo's feet sinking down in the sticky mud at every step, when there appeared from the bushes in front of me and right in the path two immense gray wolves. If they had studied to surprise me in the worst place possible, they could not have succeeded better. Rollo saw them, of course, and stopped instantly, giving deep sighs, preparing to snort I knew. To give myself courage, I talked to the horse, slowly turning him around so as not to excite him or let the timber wolves see that I was running from them. But the horse I could not deceive, for as soon as his back was toward them, head and tail went up, and there was snort after snort. He could not run, as we were still in the alkali lick. I looked back and saw that the big gray beasts were slowly moving toward us and I recognized the fact that the mud would not stop them if they chose to cross it. Once free of the awful stickiness, I knew that we would be out of danger, as the swiftest wolf could never overtake the horse, but it seemed as if it were miles across that white mud. But at last we got up on solid ground and were starting off at Rollo's best pace, when, from out of the bushes in front of us, there came a third wolf. The horse stopped so suddenly it is a wonder I was not pitched over his head, but I did not think of that at the time. The poor horse was terribly frightened, and I could feel him tremble, which made me all the more afraid. The situation was not pleasant, and without stopping to think, I said, Rollo, we must run him down. Now do your best. And taking a firm hold of the bridle, and bracing myself in the saddle, I struck the horse hard with my whip 
and gave an awful scream. I never use a whip on him, so the sting on his side and yell in his ears frightened him more than the wolf had, and he started on again with a rush. But the wolf stood still. So did my heart, for the beast looked savage. When it seemed as though we were actually upon him, I struck the horse again and gave scream after scream as fast as my lungs would allow me. The big gray thing must have thought something evil was coming, for he sprang back and then jumped over in the bushes and did not show himself again. Rollo came home at an awful pace, but I looked back once and saw, standing in the road near the bushes, five timber wolves evidently watching us. Just where the other two had been I will never know, of course. We have ridden and driven up that road many, many times, and I have often ridden through those rose bushes, but have never seen wolves or coyotes. Down in the lowland on the other side of the post we frequently see a coyote that will greet us with the most unearthly howls, and will sometimes follow carriages howling all the time. But everyone looks upon him as a pet. Those big gray timber wolves are quite another animal, fierce and savage. Someone asked me why I screamed, but I could not tell why. Perhaps it was to urge the horse, perhaps to frighten the wolf, perhaps to relieve the strain on my nerves. Possibly it was just because I was frightened and could not help it. End of letter. End of section 19.